Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, August the 22nd, 2023. Uh, last week, had the honor and pleasure of having my old friend Dave Weiner on the show. He's a legendary figure in uh, pioneering technological digital circles. One of the men who invented blogging and social media broadly, and, and one of the most influential bloggers, certainly one of the longest term bloggers. Uh, his scripting news has been going uh, for many, many years. Uh, and when I talked to Dave, I asked him when he first heard the term social media. I don't know if he quite remembered. Uh, and I'm thrilled that um, another legend in digital circles is Ethan Zuckerman, um, who now lives up uh, in Lanesboro uh, in um, Massachusetts, Western Massachusetts. He teaches at UMass Amherst. He's been involved with MIT, all sorts of startups, and he's joining us today from the garden of his home. Uh, so, Ethan, welcome. Uh, let's begin with the same question I asked Dave. I know you know Dave very well over the years. Do you remember the first time you heard the term social media? So, first of all, hello. It's great to see you. Second of all, uh, shout out to Dave, uh, who I read every day, even when I disagree with him, uh, I get... Well, we his... all disagree with Dave. That... Yeah, if you but don't I, disagree I, with Dave, you're doing something wrong, I think. I, I, get a, I, I get a daily summary of his blog, and I, I always find it interesting, even if I find it occasionally infuriating. He's a, a, a wonderful guy, and I'm, I'm so grateful for what he's done over the years. Um, I'm guessing I first heard the term social media from my friend Dana Boyd. So Dana is of the same generation of people who were sort of mucking around with user-generated content, which is what we'd really all called this stuff in the late 90s and early 2000s. And Dana wrote a paper in some ways kind of claiming the field, sort of explaining what a social network was and how it was different from things like tripod.com, which I helped start, which hosted people's personal homepages. For Dana, it was about this sort of public display of connection. It was this ability to sort of say, here are all the different people that I am connected to. Um, here are my friendships. You know, let me show them to you. That was a big part of what made it social media rather than just content generated by the users, which had been the space that I, I thought I was working in uh, up till that time. Do you think that the internet by definition is social media? We might even rename it just social media. I have a talk that I like to give that starts out by pointing out that um, email got invented in 1965, four years before the internet was invented, that the mailing list was invented by 1971, sort of goes through the really early history of these things pretty much as soon as we were able to communicate with each other digitally, we used it to build social relationships and to build up social ties. So I would argue that um, it's been social media from day one. When I think about my own use of the internet, you know, starting in 1989, it was to find people like me. Uh, I was a lonely college student in rural Western Massachusetts and I was looking for my tribe. And I think that continues. I think people 
finding their peers and reinforcing those social ties is one of the most basic things we do as humans and understandably is one of the most basic things we do when we have access to the internet. In your bio, you've done many different things. You're classically eclectic, I think, like so many of the the pioneering figures of, of digital media. But uh, above all else, you, you write about who you are, what you are, academic, uh, startup entrepreneur, activist, public intellectual. But throughout it all, you say you're a blogger. Do you remember when you first heard the term, Ethan, blogging, blogger? Well, that was definitely Dave Weiner. So Dave was a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society, now the Berkman Klein uh, Center for Internet and Society, the year that I started hanging out there, um, I managed by hook so and by crook. So what year was that? Uh, 1998, No, 2003. I'd already had two careers. I'd helped start Tripod.com and I'd started Geek Core, which was my nonprofit that brought tech people to the developing world. It was pretty clear that uh, I wasn't going to be able to keep Geek Core going. I sort of used the money that I'd made from Tripod and some generous donations from friends to uh, buy a whole lot of plane tickets to West Africa. Uh, but that was coming to an end. And I, I ended up at Berkman. I believe Dave and I probably met in 2003. And my first blog post was basically complaining about the fact that blogs were search engine candy. I'd, I'd put up like a test post on Dave's blog server and it became my number one Google result. And I was like, this is insane. Like this, you know, I should be known for other things. I shouldn't be known for this stupid blog that I'm writing. Uh, and it took me about a year to get over myself. And then I started doing two things. I started writing about... Um, African politics, uh, which is a, a big interest of mine, had been a big interest of mine, felt like wasn't getting enough attention in online spaces. And I started amplifying bloggers from sub-Saharan Africa. In the process, I met Rebecca McKinnon, who was also at Berkman. She and I ended up starting up Global Voices, which is this long running project um, designed to amplify voices from the global south. Um, so, you know, in a very real way, I owe this to Dave. Dave was sort of bringing the gospel of blogging to Berkman at a moment where there were um, a bunch of very interesting people there. Rebecca had been a CNN bureau chief in uh, Beijing and then in Tokyo, knew an incredible amount about North Asia and was using her blog to talk about North Korea through the travelogue of Chinese business people who'd been there. Um, so she was giving insights into parts of the world that we knew nothing about. I was trying my best to, to provide some insights about bloggers in sub-Saharan Africa. And in many ways, crossing those streams and bringing in some other voices is, is where Global Voices came from. Yeah, Rebecca's been on the show and actually reminds me I need to get her back. What was Berkman like in, in 2003? You know a lot of interesting people. So tell me about some of those people and what was the what was the zeitgeist there? What was the atmosphere? Was everyone running around, exciting, screaming and shouting about how uh, blogging or social media or interactive media was going to change the world? Well, so it's it's a great question to ask in part because Berkman is about to have its 25th 
anniversary. And so a lot of us, and I'll certainly be there, a lot of us are heading back to Harvard to sort of celebrate that 25th anniversary this September. This was quite early in the Berkman days. This was about five years into it. I think Berkman had already established itself as the place to be if you were interested in the internet, not so much from the technical point of view, but from the human point of view. Um, Berkman was built out of Harvard Law School. And so at least on its surface, the job was to talk about the legal and policy issues associated with the internet. But in very practical terms, it was getting sociologists, anthropologists, but it was also just getting big thinkers. Um, John Perry Barlow, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, had been one of the participants. he, you know, his spirit was still very much a big piece of it. Um, some really big thinkers. Larry Lessig was spending a decent amount of time there. Do you uh, think Larry, Larry Lessig is a really big thinker? Uh, I do think Larry Lessig is a really big thinker. I think we can have lots of conversations about what he's gotten right and wrong over the years. Um, but certainly his book code uh which had come out in 2000 and this is the period that we're talking about was utterly revolutionary in the field it was incredibly important um you know uh, people do a lot of work over a very long period of time uh but certainly larry shaped a lot of why people were thinking about internet within the context of a law you mentioned perry barlow of course he's famous for his declaration the independence of cyberspace was that a, maybe not the document itself, but was that spirit very relevant back in 2003? I think the thing to remember in 2003 is that there had been a wave of commercialization on the internet, but it was so much more modest than this wave that we're sort of experiencing at the moment. There was no Mark Zuckerberg, there was no Elon Musk. Um, when we worried about corporate evil, we were worried about Bill Gates. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, Bill Gates has has proved to be um, a, a lot less worrisome than some of our contemporary um, uh, bet noirs in this space. Um, it was a much easier time to not be naively cyber utopian, as I, as I think Barlow was in many cases, um, but to be an informed cyber utopian. So, so l- let me you know, be an example on this. Um, It was very clear to me when I was at Berkman that sub-Saharan Africa was invisible in many ways to the internet. And that seemed like a bad thing. It also seemed like something that wasn't going to naturally self-correct. And so the question became, could a project like Global Voices, which helped people pay attention to people in places like sub-Saharan Africa, could that have a positive effect? I think being optimistic about this idea that we can see what's not working well and work to fix it, I think that's an admirable stance. I think the the internet itself is inherently democratizing and will inherently move towards good. I think that's an irresponsible stance. But I think there's a lot of nuance between the two of those. And, and I think we do a certain amount of injustice if we collapse it all into cyber utopianism. Let me also say 20 years further on, I'm a lot less optimistic than I used to be. Um, It's real hard to look at 
Twitter under the leadership of Elon Musk and feel like that's a redeemable online public space. These days, I tend to feel like you need a lot more structural change. You really need genuine public spaces uh, rather than these accidental public spaces uh, created by corporate control. I want to get to Twitter and Musk in a minute, but um, you note that the Berkman Center at Harvard University in Cambridge, Mass, was one of the great centers of this democratizing media, a media that many believed would radically change the world. Certainly Larry Lessig believed that. Was there any contradiction or is there any contradiction, Ethan, with these ideas coming out of a place like Harvard, which, of course, for better or worse, is... Uh, an institution of and for elite? A, a enormous contradiction. I mean, utterly profound contradiction. So let, let's just take the Global Voices story, for example. Um, we essentially hijacked a blogging conference, probably one of Dave's conferences. Rebecca and I ended up building a global track to it. And the reason we ended up building a global, a global track to it was that uh, we felt like it was so U.S.-centric. Um, what you have to remember is the dialogue in 2003, 2004, it was about the Howard Dean campaign. It was about um, U.S. politics were going to become ever so much more participatory. Uh, yeah, it was the Dan Gilmore moment, wasn't it? I remember. Absolutely. It well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a very U.S. moment. And um, so we were like, hey, let's hijack this. Let's take advantage of the fact that. We are at Harvard. We have this amazing platform and let's bring people from all over the world. And, and one of our ambitions at that point, we were trying to bring the vice president of Iran, who had actually risen to prominence as, as a reformist blogger. And we thought it would be great to get him to our blogger conference. Um, and I will say to Harvard's credit, um, they actually have a diplomatic office that like made the formal introduction and so on and so forth. He didn't come. Um, but, you know, what we found was that you can't get a lot of people into the United States and not everyone, you know, feels comfortable at a space like Harvard. With Global Voices, we ended up very quickly forming a nonprofit organization. We actually formed it in the Netherlands because people weren't super comfortable being part of a U.S. organization during um, the Iraq War. Uh, and then we ended up doing all of our conferences in countries that we could get visas to. So, you know, Global Voices benefited enormously from the legitimation of being under the Harvard brand. But then to actually do the work of people from around the world, we had to not only get out of Harvard, but get out of the United States. Is there a, a contradiction? Yeah, of course, there's a contradiction. Um, I'm experiencing this in my own life. I spent eight years at Harvard, nine years at MIT, two of the most elite academic institutions in the world. I now teach at the University of Massachusetts, which I think in many ways is a, a better university, at least as thinks about how it teaches its students, but certainly doesn't have the cachet sort of associated with those things. Um, in many ways, my decision to work on questions of public spaces online, which is what I work on now, doing it at a public university seemed like the right place to do it. We're talking with Ethan Zuckerman, a very distinguished pu digital public intellectual. He's the author of a couple of uh, really impressive books, Mistrust um, and Rewire. We're going to take a, a short break now. Um, 
to remind everyone of our sponsors. And then after the break, we're going to be back. I want to talk to Ethan about, he mentioned the, uh, Elon Musk. I want to talk about Twitter. Um, but to remind all viewers and listeners, I'm thrilled that our new uh, sponsor uh, this, uh, this month is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, a really wonderful quarterly, old-fashioned. It's online, but it's a physical product more than anything else. I'm going to run a short ad. And then we'll be back with Ethan Zuckerman to talk about Twitter. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can find out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are back with uh, my old friend Ethan Zuckerman. Uh, Ethan, you were one of the early guys on um, on uh, on Twitter. In fact, you're, that might be your middle name, early guy. Uh, you got on in... Um, you joined in March 2007. That's still publicly available on on, mm -hmm. on X now. Do you remember when you first heard about Twitter in in early 2007? What did you think? How did you find out about it? So I think most of the cool kids got on Twitter at South by Southwest that year. Um, I've never been a big South by fan. Um, it it may be that. Um, I, I've I've been lucky enough to marry two Texans in my life, and uh, I, I'm more of a San Antonio or a Houston guy uh, than an Austin guy. But I, I wasn't at that South. Maybe by. that's your third wife. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe I need to find an Austinite. You might be right. Uh, although I I, uh, uh, I I love Amy very very much and the city of Houston. Um, but I, I think a lot of people were talking about this new thing going on in Austin. I probably joined Roundabout then, despite not being at the conference. Um, I try not to be, you, you know, the first 10,000 user of something. I really try to wait and see if it's actually getting traction within my friends who adopt everything. Uh, and people kept talking about it and they kept sort of mentioning it as an interesting place to be. And I, I joined at that point. I don't think Twitter actually became all that interesting until maybe 2009, 2010, for me, Twitter was a really nice complement to blogging. What I used to do an enormous amount of is uh, go to conferences and try to write up very long summaries of sort of everything people had said. And what I ended up finding was every so often, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't get the whole 2000 word article out on someone's talk. And Twitter was a nice alternative. It was a way of sort of getting it out in a couple of quick sound bites. I think I got it for the first time. I was blogging the PopTech conference with my dear ex-wife and still dear friend, Rachel Barenblatt. We were uh, blogging PopTech up in Camden, Maine. Right. It was Michael... that, that was one of those sort of Ted, Ted light conferences. It was, it was the East Coast Ted at that point. And Michael Pollan was speaking. She was a big Michael Pollan what fan. What year was this? 2009? It must have been about 2009. Uh, yeah, it was 2009 because she was uh, pregnant with my son, Drew, who is now 13. So so 2009, um, Michael Pollan speaking. She wanted to write up the talk because she was a Pollan fan. I was tweeting it out. 
And I tweeted out a quote from Pollen, which was uh, a, a vegan in a Hummer, um, a, you know, a, a meat eater in a Prius has less impact than uh, a vegan in a Hummer. He was trying to make the argument that, you know, meat is a terrible thing and, and has huge environmental impact. And uh, it was just this quip and it, it was clearly carefully rehearsed. And I tweeted it out. And within 10 minutes, people all over Twitter were like, that cannot possibly be true. Uh, and doing sort of energy use comparisons between the Prius and the Hummer and, you know, how much beef you would have to eat for that to actually be true. To the point with Pollen on stage during the Q&A, someone said, you know, Twitter has more or less proved you wrong. How do you react to that? And Pollen refused to have the video uh, circulated because uh, he said he wanted to get the facts right. He didn't want to be spreading myths or disinformation. I think the truth is he didn't want to be embarrassed um, on the permanent record. I happened to see him on stage three months later. He was using the same line. It's a great line. It just happens to be false. But that notion of, wow, we could fact check this in real time. We could have an interactive conversation about this. That felt incredibly powerful. And that idea of sort of like Twitter being your intellectual posse, um, I thought that was super interesting. And and I definitely got more interested in the platform at that point. Twitter at its best, for sure. You wrote recently for uh, Wired that um, there will be, there will never be another Twitter. They came to you uh, actually in May of this year, the, the editor, uh, Gideon uh, Lishfield, I know him as well. He, I think he used to be at The Economist. Why will there never be another Twitter? What was it or what is it about Twitter or X or whatever we want to call it, Ethan, that means that it's not replicable? Twitter was a big room. And what I mean by that is everybody's in the same space you're not necessarily having the same conversations. It's like being in a very crowded living room at a cocktail party where everyone's talking to everyone else. But the power of the big room is that you might be able to get the attention of everybody else. So if you think about a movement like Me Too, right? This started as a conversation within people uh, talking about sexual assault survivorship, but it grabbed this hashtag, it brought in aspects of the racial justice movement, and suddenly it's a big conversation that millions of people are involved with. Black Lives Matter has done similar things around this. Big rooms are incredible because something can go from that small conversation and suddenly become what everybody's talking about. Most new social networks, the places that people are putting in effort, the places that people seem to be gravitating towards are quite small rooms. Um, they are Discord servers, they are WhatsApp channels, they are much more constrained spaces. And the reason that people like them is that it's much easier to govern those spaces. In a big room, you're always going to object to some, how someone else is using it. You're always going to have someone saying, that's not what the space is for, that's not how you use this. In a small room, you can say, no, this is my subreddit. These are the rules of the road. Go found your other if you want to be there. And so, you know, my argument, my argument for that, that piece for Wired was that these small room social networks were where the innovation was going to happen uh, and that 
replacing Twitter by building another big room was not the way to go. Now, you know as well as I do that writers don't get to choose their own headlines. I don't know that I would have put forward the assertion there will never be another Twitter. But as I think about it, I, I'm actually reasonably comfortable with that. I think Twitter came about at this moment where social media was still new enough that that idea of a default public network but one that would host thousands of little conversations felt like a good idea. I don't know that it feels like a good idea in the same way anymore, Andrew. I, I think many of these conversations, people want to move them into spaces that they have more control over and more authority over the rules. You mentioned that at Harvard, you tried to invite the vice president of Iran back in 2003 when you were at Berkman, a, a reformist. Do you remember the impact of social media and Twitter and Facebook, of course, on the Arab Spring? Does anything come to mind, Ethan, when you think back on that? I think maybe the most prescient piece. And of course, I, just to I apologize for jumping in. That's all right. Uh, I don't mean to imply that Iran is was or is part of the Arab Spring. Iran, of course, is not Arab, but similar part of the world, I guess. Yeah, I, I wrote a piece right at the very beginning uh, called What If Tunisia Had a Revolution and No One Noticed? And it was a reaction to the fact that our friends in Global Voices and our friends on social media were following the uprisings in Sidi Bouzid very, very closely. Um, I'd had the opportunity to travel to Tunisia a few years before that. I'd gone for the World Summit of the Information Society. Rebecca and I almost got thrown out of the country. Uh, we gave a workshop in Tunisia called Expression Under Repression. Um, this was in 2006 under the Ben Ali presidency. You can imagine it wasn't real popular. And uh, we had, you know, uh, our, our conference room got chained shut, so on and so forth. So, you know, usually after a country tries to throw me out, I try to pay close attention to it. So I was following this uprising in Tunisia and it was getting enormous amounts of attention in Arabic media, in French media, but nothing in U.S. media. And then once the Arab Spring moved to Egypt and American authors started paying attention to it, once you had people... Uh, like Wael Gonim, who speak brilliant English and, and were able to sort of give voice in English to what was going on, you got global attention. But it was very clear to me that during the Arab Spring, this was an alternative pathway for media. The way that I explain Tunisia to people these days is to say, look, Tunisia tried to censor all digital media. They couldn't censor Facebook. It was just so important to daily life that every time they tried to crack down on it, all they succeeded was teaching Tunisians how to use virtual private networks to get around the block. And so once these protests unfolded in Tunisia, they were live streamed on Facebook. They had been put out on Facebook. Tunisians in the diaspora followed these streams, sent them off to Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera broadcasted back into the country and very quickly, that's the media recipe for a revolution. It really was a dramatic moment. I think in retrospect, we tend to forget this because so many of the countries that had positive transformation during the Arab Spring fell back into autocracy or worse. 
but there really was something very exciting that happened um, at that moment where people were able to create information and put it online uh, without a lot of control. Yeah, we've got Sami Ben Garbia, one of the Tunisian, one of the leaders of the Ch Tunisian uh, movement, uh, lives in Barcelona now, is going to come on the show in uh, at the beginning of next month. So I'm excited about that. Moving on, um, uh, Ethan, back in 2014, you've written, you've written a lot of interesting pieces. For, for Atlantic, you wrote a piece back in 2014 about what you called, and maybe this was the, the editor at Atlantic, uh, the internet's original sin, the ad-based business model, which um, has become known as surveillance capitalism. How, how do you think the advertising model that became intimately bound up with Web 2.0 and Twitter and Facebook, how did that shape or reshape social media? Yeah, so that was one of the rare ones I actually got to name. And um, shout so out to Adrian. stand by that one. It is oh, the yeah. original a sin. A Adrian LaFrance at, at The Atlantic, um, I, I, incredibly kind to me over the years and, and really took a risk on that piece, which in retrospect is a little uh, overridden and overlong as most of my writing is. But um, the argument that I was trying to make there was that in the late 1990s, when we were building Tripod, when people were building GeoCities, when people were building all of these sort of powerhouses of the late 1990s, you know, obviously companies no one remembers right now, but companies that actually kind of set the template for how the internet works, there were a bunch of models that we could have used. Um, we could have been subscription-based. Uh, we could have leaned into micropayment. We could have chosen the model that a lot of YouTube creators use right now, which is really a merchandise-based model, trying to figure out how to turn attention not directly into money, but into you know selling another commodity. And what we ended up with was um, advertising and targeted advertising specifically. And we did it because it was what seemed to work best. Um, there were already advertisers used to doing it. They were used to what it meant on television and in magazines. We were able to make the sale that we would be exactly like television and magazines, only better, um, because we would be able to show you whether people actually paid attention to your ad or not. We would be able to give you all sorts of other information to make sure you were targeting the right people. We were very persuasive in what we said. What we did not do was think very much about the implications of all of it. And the implications that we did not think about was that attention would become the most valuable commodity and that whatever you could do to garner attention would be the most valuable thing. So the Internet, which you have to remember in the 90s, still was a heavily academic space. It still had a lot of its roots in academic computing. A lot of the people like me who were fooling around in it were not very far removed from the university. We still thought of it as a place of knowledge and a place of information. But we sort of unleashed these demons based around whatever it takes to get attention. And that turns out to have lots of scary and negative implications uh, in terms of what gets attention online, what sells online. And I still think we're dealing with the fallout of that now, which is why I wrote that piece.
And thus we have the term the influencer economy. There would be no influencers without the Internet's original sin, would there, Ethan? Or it would have been much more indirect. But I think, for instance, imagine that we'd done the subscriber economy. What we'd actually be looking for is, you know, who was making their content accessible and who was doing enough work that they were worth paying $5 a month to. Uh, it would have been an internet, you know, sort of based much more around something like Patreon. And or Substack, which is sure. coming back. Maybe we'll do another show around that. Uh, I, but I know you got to run. Uh, final question. You run an interesting piece. Um, all your stuff's interesting, Ethan, but uh, an interesting piece on AI, on AI. Everyone's writing AI pieces back in May. When AI thinks you're dead, a lot of people see AI as the next chapter, the next stage in the history of technology and the internet. But I wonder what, in your view, the connection is between social media, the, the, the social media blogging epoch and AI. Uh, John Borthwick, who I know you know, and um, Michael Waldridge, who's a professor of computer science at um, Oxford, they've both been on the show and they suggest that the training wheels for AI in many respects have, were, or, or AI has been trained on our social media data. Does that resonate with you? Does social media in an odd way inevitably lead to our age of AI? Have we, are we about to reap what we sowed on social media with AI? We, we've given away our souls and now these machines know who we are and what we want. Well, let, let me tease my next column. So I write a monthly column um, for Alan Rusbridger at Prospect, which is the best. Oh, he's a Prospect it. now. I didn't know. Yeah. He's the ex-Guardian guy. And, and under him, Prospect has really become tremendous. It's the best magazine you're not reading. Um, no, but I gotta, I gotta do that. I, I've, I've been loving uh, writing with him and for Alex Dean, who's my editor there. The column that I'm uh, drafting right now uh, is exactly on this topic. It's, it's about this question of how has generative AI gone so far so fast? And in a funny way, what it's really done is it's taken the last you know few thousand years of human creation and particularly the sort of 20 years that we've been creating on the web and it's grabbed it and it's sort of juiced it it's like harvesting you know mm. all those grapes and and sort of producing the juice of the wine from them the question is uh, crushing is it, the grapes even. crushing the grapes you know uh and and whether you get whether you get vinegar or wine is is perhaps a different question uh coming out of it um a little experiment. The, the Washington Post did a, a, a good piece some time ago looking at a data set called the Common Crawl. This is the data set that most large language models are trained on. And you can go and look at what websites it's trained on. It turns out my humble little blog ranks about 42,000. It's responsible for you know, three ten thousandths of a percent of large language models. Um, so in a very real sense, it's not just social media, it's blogs. Uh, Dave Weiner, who we started this conversation with, he's well represented within it. Uh, Reddit is well represented within it. Reddit ranks about 800th in media sources. Uh, Global Voices, who I mentioned, all those thinkers from around the world, um, that's easily in the top thousand. 
it turns out that social media by itself is not necessarily all that helpful. Social media ranks as low quality text. High quality text is books, it's journal papers, it's edited magazine articles, it's well-kept blogs. It might be the best of Reddit sort of filtering to the top of it. That stuff is the cream that these models are trained on. And there's a real scarcity to it. There's a paper that just came out a few months ago essentially saying, if these large language models keep growing at the rate they are, if they keep ingesting more and more, we actually run out of human knowledge to feed them in about 2027. Uh, and it's not a great idea to just feed the outputs of AI back in as the inputs. That actually takes whatever biases are in the system and just amplifies them. So it's possible that what we saw in terms of text generation was this brief period of flourishing, which might now slow down quite a bit just because we actually end up with some real scarcity as far as this content goes. As far as your question on sort of the dark side of this, are we getting the id? Are we getting, you know, the collective bad side uh, coming out of this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That piece you referenced where when AI thinks you're dead, this was a meditation on a hallucination. If you go into chat GPT, Andrew, and, and have it generate 10 bios for you, what you'll find is that they get it 70 or 80% right. There will be 15% where it gives you honors that you haven't earned. You'll win a Pulitzer or something like that. And uh, 5% of the time, it'll kill you off. Uh, and it will invent a car crash or a tragic disease. And the reason for that is that bios are often written as obituaries. So for you to have a long bio, it's very plausible for you to be dead. And that's what these systems engineer for. They engineer for plausibility. And so that's a bias. Uh, it Maybe it's not a particularly worrisome bias. Maybe it's not as bad as the bias that all nurses are female or all doctors are male, but it is a bias. And, and that's what gets built into all of these systems. If these systems are a manifestation of our collective work, our collective consciousness, they're also a manifestation of our collective biases. And that has some real negative sides as well as positive sides.